0: Good evening and welcome. It's a privilege and a pleasure to have you here at the Rothko Chapel this evening for the start of the 2017 Spring Symposium on criminal justice reform, an act of justice, undoing the legacy of mass incarceration. Now I only have a couple logistical things that I'd like to do uh, this evening. Number one, if you could please silence or turn off your cell phones, that would be great. I'll even model that for you because I'm never sure. Okay, that's good. Um, The second thing is we just ask no photography. We uh, post a lot of pictures on our website if you want to get it that way. That would be great, it'd be really nice uh, if you would refrain from that too. And the other thing I'd like you to do is just for a moment, look down at the floor, at these, what might you might think is pretty innocuous paving tiles, but I want you to think about for just a second the millions and millions of pairs of feet that have come into this place. Some seeking solace, some a place of renewal, a place of healing, a place of hope, a place of thinking about the world in a very different way and Just think about your feet being melded and all these feet that have come to this place of pilgrimage. It's an honor to have you here, but to also join those who have come before. So welcome to the Rothko Chapel. This symposium, which will be held over the next, we could say three days, uh, counting today, is a very important opportunity for us to look at the issue of criminal justice reform, particularly through the lens of mass incarceration, which we're offering in partnership with the uh, University of St. Thomas Criminology, Law, and Society Department. The goals of this symposium are very timely and very straightforward. First of all, we're here to learn. We're here to learn about the development of the mass incarceration system in this country, And we're also here to meet and engage with people from diverse backgrounds who work tirelessly every day to develop and utilize alternatives to incarceration and to work to improve the jails, youth correctional facilities, prisons, um, all across this country which house millions and millions of people. Millions of people who are our brothers, our sisters, our aunts and uncles, our neighbors, and friends we have not yet met, but people just like ourselves. And most importantly, the symposium is offered to help all of us discover how each of us support and are connected to the criminal justice system, be it as someone who's been incarcerated, a family member of someone who's been incarcerated, a taxpayer, a volunteer, someone who makes their living in the legal profession, a correctional officer, or an employee of some tangential or other industry that also depends on this mass incarceration system. Simply put, the symposium is about all of us, not the other, not somebody unknown, not a number, and not somebody else's problem. It's about all of us. Our hope is that this symposium adds its support to the growing multi-partisan, multi-sector reform movement that calls each of us to affirm our shared responsibility and affirm the innate worth, humanity, and potential of all who are incarcerated and those impacted by the system and to create the processes and systems that affirm this universal truth. Now I want to tell you, developing a symposium of this nature involves a lot of people in organizational support. In particular, I want to lift up the Planning Committee, who spent a number of hours, and I can say wrestling, over this topic what direction to go, what's the best way to do it. And all these folks are named in your programs. So I'm going to name them all, but I want to lift them up as a group today the Planning Committee. I also want to thank uh, the underwriters for tonight, and I will name them uh, Hank Coleman, the Dudley T. Doherty Foundation. The law offices of DeGarren, a foreman DeGarren and Daguerin, De and a very, very generous anonymous donor who collectively allowed us to put this symposium on and offer it as a very free to low cost event because it's this kind of events that we do at the chapel that really are about the community being able to access the great thinkers and speakers and people that we bring here day in and day out. I also want to thank the University of St. Thomas uh, for partnering in this event. In particular, and I think he's sitting in the very back row, uh, Dr. Roberto Lacara. Roberto, could you stand and and let us welcome you. Thank you very much. The university has a new program and uh, Dr. Lacara is a founding chair and associate professor of criminology law and society at the university it's great to have the partnership we're also neighbors so it's really nice to be able to share resources just really across the street and i also want to lift up our chapel staff and our guild who will be here throughout the whole symposium they all have these name tags on i actually wore mine tonight so you could see it because as you're moving back and forth between the chapel and saint thomas if you have a question look for somebody with a name tag because they're the ones that can help you get in the right place. So I want to say thanks to them. And I want to particularly lift up uh, Ashley Clemmer, who is our uh, Director of Programs and Community Engagement. And you may have met her already, Kelly Johnson, who's Kelly's, uh, or Ashley's cohort, who's out on the plaza right now, who've just been doing amazing uh, work to get us here this evening. After tonight's address, we will have a reception on the plaza. We do this at all of our public programs as a chance to give you an opportunity to continue the conversation. And what we really hope is a chance to get to meet people you've never met before. Because what we do with this is we start to gather people with common interests, and you may not even know your neighbor had an interest that you've known for 30 years, much less met somebody new. So it's part of that building of community in our own community. And then at the very end, I'll come back on and kind of give you Uh, Sense of what the next couple of days are going to be like as we move forward from this evening. Now, with that done, it's my privilege and pleasure to present to you uh, Audrey M. Audrey is a uh, a participant in Writers in the Schools, and it's a group that uh, literally has their offices right around the corner, but somebody who we partner a lot with these days uh, to bring other voices to the issues that we're dealing with. Uh, we were very privileged at uh, Martin Luther King's birthday on January 15th, where we welcomed back the Broken Obelisk, Barnett Newman's iconic sculpture on the plaza, where we had writers in the school and Houston Youth Poet laureate, that came and brought us the issue we were dealing with through the spoken word. So tonight, I want to present to you Audrey M.
1: Hello, Um, my name is Audrey Mills. I'm a member of the Writers in the Schools Youth Advisory Council. And the poem I'm reading today was written by a student from the Harris County Juvenile Probation Department while participating in WIT's creative writing workshops. And the poem was originally published in Brother Sky, which is a collective of male juvenile offenders who were writing while locked up. So this is uh, Silver and Gold by Javier. Can we meet at the bridge? Will you promise to be there? Your eyes are like diamonds shining in the sun. Raindrops stop. You rise like a flame on the mountaintop. I am like silver, and you are like gold. I am like silver, and you are like gold on the mountaintop. You rise like a flame, and raindrops stop, and clouds drift away. You shine like the sun. Your eyes are like diamonds. Will you promise to be there? Can we meet at the bridge? Thank you.
0: Throughout the symposium, we're gonna have different voices from from WITS. So Audrey, thank you so much for sharing that this evening. It's now my privilege to present to you this evening Professor Margaret Burnham. Professor Burnham's bio is in the program, so I'm not gonna go through all of that, but I had the privilege of spending a little time with her today. And I think what I want to lift up are three words, academic, lawyer, and advocate. Those three things just really struck me as we were talking today. And I don't know if she would say this, but what I would say is that her vocation is to help all of us, that means all of us, to find and to claim a more expansive understanding of history and the liberation that comes through that, no matter where we come from, no matter what our place is, because so often what happens in historical narratives and storytelling, we get a very truncated version of what is real. And what I found today was that ability to say, how does that offer a portal into better understanding about who we are as individuals and who we are as collectives. That is, not rest only in past narrative, but what does that transcend for hope and possibility for the future? So with that as a background, and then all the stuff that's in the bio, I do want to lift this up, though. She is a professor of law and African-American studies at Northeastern School of Law. She is the founder and director of the Northeastern University Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project, which has compiled the most comprehensive archive on mid-20th century racially motivated murder cases in the United States. Professor Burnham served as a judge in Massachusetts and has participated in human rights missions around the world. In 1993, Nelson Mandela appointed Burnham to an international human rights tribunal investigating violations in South Africa. She received the prestigious Carnegie Fellowship, which is awarded to the nation's preeminent scholars and thinkers. She is a teacher. She is someone who helps young people and students find new possibilities for their future. She is someone who tonight will help us get a better grasp and understanding and how in the world did this country become the most incarcerated nation, I believe, in the United States, and where do we go from here? So, Professor Burnham, welcome to the Rothko Chapel.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, David, and thank all of you for uh, joining us here at the beginning of this uh, symposium. I particularly thank uh, the donors and the planners uh, of uh, these uh, next two days, which uh, promise to be uh, stimulating, uh, educative, uh, and challenging. Uh, and so it's a great pleasure to uh, share a few words with you to kick off uh, the, these next couple of days. Uh, I also specifically want to thank uh, Ashley Klemmer, who has put up with uh, my failure to answer her emails from time to time. Uh, I think she, she she thought I was uh, just a, a phantom, but, but here I am and uh, I'm, I'm so delighted to be here um, in Houston. It's my first time in Houston. I've been telling a couple of folks that not my first time in your state. My uh, son-in-law was in service in uh, San Antonio, so I have touched foot in Texas before, but this is my first time in the best city in Texas, let me put it that way, so I'm really glad to be here. And I'm also glad to be here on such a lovely day. When I return home tomorrow to Boston, I return to a snowstorm. So it's really just wonderful to be here uh, when the weather is um, really um, so, um, so gorgeous. So, folks, we're meeting at a time uh, when interest in this subject is really large. And some have said that this we are presented with what is, uh, in, in effect, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to uh, take a close look at and to transform a system that has plagued us uh, and that has enraged us uh, and incarcerated us, many of us, uh, for yay, these last 30 years. System that has been overly punitive, that has ruined our families and our communities. Uh, and now we here we stand uh, on the precipice of change. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about what I think that might look like. Uh, I am going to talk in facts and figures. I am going to try to throw out just some, some data out there uh, to help, uh, so bear with me please. Uh, to help us uh, frame the discussions over the next two, two days. Uh, and I say that because obviously, you know, the heart of this issue is our heart. It's who we are as a country. It's who we want to be uh, as a country. And so it pulls on uh, all of our uh, deepest uh, visions and hopes for, uh, for, for, the f- for our future as a country and for what it is we want to hand down to our children. Uh, but it's also because this issue is so pressing and so prescient, it's also time to learn a little bit and to sort of think uh, quite closely about what some of the facts and figures do tell us. Um, so um, as David mentioned, uh, David called it a not a uh, bipartisan, but really a multi-partisan uh, effort at this point to bring in some real criminal justice reform i think it's worth remembering that the beast that we're dealing with today uh, was really a result also of a bipartisan effort on the part of our politicians uh, to do what they thought wrongly clearly uh, was uh was in the inter- in the long-term best interests of our country And that coalition included, it wasn't just Republicans, it included Democrats, like the Democrats from my own state, Mike Weld, and also Governor, excuse me, Michael Dukakis, and also Governor Weld, uh, who famously talked about the joys of busting rocks when he ran as a Republican senator in Massachusetts. But in your state, it included uh, Ann Richards, as well as uh, George Bush, uh, who were on the side of expanding our prison system. And on the federal side, Ronald Reagan, as well as Bill Clinton. And not only was it bipartisan, but it was also multiracial. If any of you have seen the film Thirteenth, it's a wonderful movie, I recommend it to all of you. Uh, you'll see Harlem's representative, Charlie Wrangel, there uh, talking about what it was like to legislate during those years and the pressures that he faced from his community uh, to uh, take a hard stance on drug uh, laws. Um, so it was not just Charlie Rangel, but also Baltimore's Kirk Smoke and Kwesi Mfumi, uh, all of whom thought that this was in the best interest of the communities that they served. They could not have been more wrong, uh, clearly. Uh, They clearly didn't have in mind the disproportionate effect that all of this would have on black and brown communities, uh, nor the devastating effect it would have on our entire country, Uh, but they proceeded in the Uh, view with the view uh, that this was the way uh, to generate um, safety although some of them also had in mind that this was the way to generate jobs um, and to build more uh, prisons uh, and uh, and 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 there were other uh, obviously uh, less um, you know uh, obviously other policies uh, behind the huge expansion of prison system So that was then. So now we have a multi and bipartisan coalition for criminal justice reform. And the questions uh, before us are, well, what are the interests of the various players? And how will they affect the kind of reform we can actually all grab onto and realize in our own lifetimes? Uh, So certainly there are the fiscal concerns. Uh, that are still uh, still high on the agenda of those who are looking. Uh, to close prisons and to decrease uh, prison populations. Uh, people are clearly deeply still concerned about racial disparities. Uh, in part, it's also the ineffectiveness of the policies that drove uh, the agenda of the 1980s and 1990s. It hasn't been shown that longer sentences and greater incarceration actually does improve safetyness in our communities. Uh, and there is more emphasis nowadays on data-driven policies, the use of diagnostic and predictive tools to actually measure progress uh, and to measure uh, uh, the the, uh, results that we're we're actually seeking to achieve. So we are, folks, in the middle of a uh, major policy shift. And so the question is really, you know, we have to look back and we have to look forward and we have to also think about the moment we're in. I kind of think about this. Uh, almost like folks who were in the New Deal, like what did it feel like to really transform uh, our federal government and to render it really relevant to the lives of uh, people in our country at a point uh, when so many people in our country were suffering or the desegregation period in the 1950s and 1960s uh, when we were actually trying to again to transform uh, our country and, uh, and uh, so that it could be in a position to live up to its deepest ideals. That's where we are today. We're sort of in the middle of this. Um, so I want to touch on 10 topics, uh, which uh, I, I want to refer to as a roadmap to criminal justice reform. I want to talk very specifically about the ideas that are out there and how they relate to real criminal justice reform. So the first topic is the school to prison uh, pipeline, and we all know that that uh, has to do with this idea that zero tolerance policies are the best way to create sa- safe schools. That the more, cho- that if you lock up children uh, for even minor infractions, you ultimately are improving learning opportunities uh, for schools as a whole. Now, the Department of Education in 2014 determined that students of color are suspended at a rate that is three times higher than that of white students. Uh, here in Texas, a 2011 report uh, released by the Council of State Government, Sen- Justice Center, and Texas A&M, Uh, revealed uh, that analyzed 6.6 million school records tracking every Texas 7th grader from 2000 to 2006. And they found that uh, suspension or expulsion, no surprise here, dramatically increased the student's risk of exposure to the juvenile, uh, juvenile justice system that 97, a whopping 97% of the disciplinary measures, excuse me, disciplinary measures that uh, resulted in some form of police contact were from completely discretionary offenses rather than from state mandated punishments such as possessing a weapon or drugs in a school. And they found that in this state, African American students had a 31% higher likelihood of being disciplined for a so-called discretionary offense. Now, the same is true in our state, in Massachusetts. In our three largest school districts, Boston, Springfield, and Worcester, the same data establishes that uh, school that uh, that children of color are three times more likely to be arrested for these offenses, and that if they are arrested and sent to juvenile facilities, or if they are arrested and even sent or detained, uh, and even sent to jail, they are three times more likely to drop out of school. Now, you could ask whether that's cause or effect, but we clearly know that something is up here, that there is a, a relationship, dramatic relationship, between court involvement uh, for our young people. Remedies have been proposed, and none of them have, are completely effective to date. Uh, these are small, incremental measures. They include, for example, providing students with some form of counsel uh, before they are uh, exposed to the juvenile justice system, uh, providing them with students who are facing expulsion with uh, due process rights, uh, and also uh, limiting uh, periods of exclusion to, uh, to exclusion from school uh, to a month or two months or three months. Uh, in our state, our governor, past governor, uh, governor, Governor Duval, the Pat- Patrick signed a bill introducing some of these reforms in order to, uh, in order to affect uh, the school-to-prison pipeline. So that's issue number one. What do we do about the increasing criminalization of our young people? Second issue, community policing. Um, this question involves how we transform our police departments uh, from the warrior model to the a guardian model. Now, the warrior model, uh, criminal justice uh, experts uh, say, comes out of this theory uh, that criminologists apply, criminologists and public policy advocates applied in the 1980s and 1990s, the so-called broken windows theory. Uh, That is to say that when police crack down on small petty crimes, it fosters an attitude, of order and it encourages uh, people uh... to behave properly uh... rather than to uh... break the law um, so uh... that's the theory uh... it's most uh... prominently represented in new york's uh... stop and frisk policy uh... that was declared unconstitutional by a federal court in new york a few years ago on the opposite side of this model um, the um, the guardian uh, the excuse me warrior model is this idea that the job of the police is to train and protect rather than to conquer and to control and many departments are developing this uh, new model it's going to take a long time to change police culture uh, but it is essential if at the end of the day we're going to have a new Criminal justice, a reformed criminal justice system. Uh, The final report of President Obama's 2015 presidential task force adopted recommendations that uh, that that mirrored this Guardian model of policing by calling for. Proactive, uh, public, uh, proactively promoting public trust, in, uh, initiating positive non-enforcement activities to engage communities. Uh, and uh, I know that in this state, certainly, uh, your former um, Dallas police chief, uh, David Brown, um, certainly uh, reflected this idea that the perspective and objective of policing uh, was to partner with communities uh, rather than to uh, come in and impose a force from the outside. So that's the third point. the second point. Here's my third point. <clears throat> Not only do we have to change police culture, but we also have to uh, continue to build on the message emerging from the Black Lives Movement that we need to effectively, it is the job of civilians to effectively police the police, Um, that the police uh, are not going to effectively, in the nature of things will not and cannot effectively be fully responsible uh, for their own lawful, for maintaining lawful behavior. So civil oversight has the potential to create reform in this area and I wanna talk specifically about uh, a number of uh, initiatives that go in that direction. Uh, First of all, uh, transparency. Many jurisdictions have adopted legislation requiring uh, police departments to report to someone in most states it's the Attorney General whenever anyone is shot. Now it's crazy to think that you know that that what you can shoot someone and uh, and keep it within your department, but that is the rule in most uh, most jurisdictions in the United States. Uh, So that, in and of itself, will increase transparency. Body cams, obviously, another form of transparency, allowing uh, civilian groups like court watch programs, uh, block uh, programs, um, to do their work without undue police interference in their work. Uh, And also, uh, and this is particularly important, making uh, available to the public, uh, but perhaps even more importantly to prosecutors information about police misconduct. Uh, and I'm aware of a case here in uh, Texas, the Carlos Flores case. Uh, Carlos Flores was charged with assault on a police officer, uh, and he pleaded no loan to that. Uh, so you think, okay, you know, some responsibility, somewhere, it had to be some responsibility somewhere. Um, but it turns out, Uh, that the police officer had in fact beaten Carlos Flores uh, and uh, been disciplined for it. However, the prosecutor in San Antonio knew nothing about the police assault on Flores, that it was the police officer who assaulted Flores and not the other way around. And therefore, since he knew nothing about it, he wasn't uh, in a position to, she or he, was not in a position to transfer, to to give that information over to the defense attorney who could then have had a perfectly uh, uh, reliable uh, and effective defense to the charge against Florence, right? Uh, not only reliable and effective, but because in Texas, Um, the rules for prosecutorial disclosure are higher. The standard for prosecutorial disclosure is higher than it is under the US Constitution in Texas. More is required of the prosecutor than in in most other states or uh, under US law, under federal law. Um, But this prosecutor was not in a position to do that. Uh, Why? Because the department had no responsibility uh, to turn that inf- the information, internal department information about the disciplinary procedure over to the prosecutor. Um, so that has to, those loopholes have to be identified and they have to be closed in the campaign to effectively uh, police the police and effectively help the police police themselves. Uh, fourth, bail reform. Um, now so bail obviously is the first uh, concept uh, which was first implemented in the, England in the Middle Ages, the, the idea of bail was that it provided an opportunity to release people, uh, to emancipate them before uh, they came uh, their trial they came along. However, it's been used, as we all know, in the United States, famously, in the Sandra Bland case, could keep those who Uh, for whom there is no reason at all to retain in a police cell to keep them locked up. The New York Times recently reported that, quote, even when bail is set comparatively low at $500 or less, as it is in one-third of non-felony cases, $500 or less, only 15% of defendants are able to make that bail. 15% of defendants are able to make that bail. So there's a huge bail reform movement out there. The objective, the ultimate objective, abolish money bail. Figure out other ways of assuring the presence of defendants in court. Uh, uh, One one way is to use what's called a risk assessment system. Uh, nearly all Western countries use a risk assessment uh, system, as do four states in our in our country: Colorado, New York. Excuse me, not New York. Colorado, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Washington D.C. They've all almost virtually abolished money bail. Um, so, what does that require? It requires an investment in some sort of pretrial services. It requires. Um, the uh, the creation of effective risk assessment tools and the implementation uh, of those tools, um, and it requires kind of a shift in our thinking uh, that bail uh, that uh, incarceration is not the default, incarceration pretrial is not the default, but rather release pretrial um, is the default. That the um, that the burden is on the prosecutor or whoever it is who's recommending uh, incarceration to show that that is the only way of assuring a person's return to trial. Um, in, every, in any given day, 60% of the U.S. bail uh, population is composed of people who are convicted but detained because only because they're Awaiting trial, and again, this is an area in which racial disparities loom enormously large. In Texas, sixty-five thousand per people are held in county jail, and of those sixty-five people, sixty-five thousand people held in county jails, two-thirds of them are held pre-trial. Um, so, bail reform, I know, is was proposed. Uh, in Texas by Senator Whitmire and others uh, requ- that would require judges to use these risk assessment tools uh, and to consider other low-risk means of releasing nonviolent defendants. Um, so bail reform has to apply not only to nonviolent, it has to apply across the board. You know, you can't, you can't, we can't just seal off this one group of uh, defendants and say, all oh, you other folks, we're going with the old system. You get locked up, you get long terms, you get um, uh, uh, life without parole, all of that is for those of you who are violent. Everybody else, you get our new system. That can't be, we, can, we're not gonna, we, we, we won't change anything by doing that. Um, also, I want to recommend to those of you who are not aware of it, and I'm sure everybody in here is, the Sandra Bland Act, which was proposed recently by your Representative Garnet uh, Garnet Coleman, uh, which includes lots of wonderful provisions that would transform um, the reality that faced Sandra Bland, uh, but that also includes important provisions on bail reform. Uh, Fifth, eyewitness identification. Our Innocence Project uh, estimates that faulty eyewitness identification is a contributing factor to more than 70 convictions, excuse me, that more than 70 convictions, 70% of convictions that have been overturned uh, have been overturned on the basis of faulty eyewitness identification. 70% of those convictions overturned based on DNA are the result of faulty con- eyewitness identification. So faulty eyewitness, identification implicates a whole set of Uh, practices, including bad police practices, contaminated memory, suggestive photo IDs, you name it. So again, there are lots of reform measures in this area and some of them are coming out of Texas, some are coming out of my home state in Massachusetts. In 2001, Texas passed a law enabling inmates to request DNA testing. Uh, to determine whether their convictions were sound and obviously the DNA helps to determine uh, whether or not there's been uh, a a, a faulty uh, eyewitness identification. Uh, Requiring police departments to uh, have written policies and guidelines with respect to lineups and eyewitness identifications. Every department should be required. There should be some standard. Every department should follow that standard. In our own jurisdiction, Massachusetts, it's the judiciary, not the legislature, that has been the leading voice on uh, transforming eyewitness, uh, improving eyewitness identifications. Uh, In uh, last year, our Supreme Judicial Court ruled that scientific principles have to be introduced in jury instructions whenever a defendant's identification is at stake. In other words, the jurors have to be told, look, uh, there are uh, factors that can contribute to faulty identifications that have nothing to do with the uh, frame of mind, uh, or the disposition, or the goodwill, or the honesty of the identifier. Uh, but these are psychological factors that jurors need to be educated about uh, before they return convictions that are based either solely or mostly on eyewitness identification. Certainty does not correlate with accuracy in identification. We know that uh, due in large part uh, or in, in a good measure to the work of the Innocence Project, and that needs to be Uh, that is a key uh, area for reform. Okay, sixth, let's think about who's locked up and how we decarcerate. As David said, and as we all know, famously know now, we have the highest incarceration rate in the world. Uh, And we right here, sitting right here in Houston, are at the epicenter of the incarceration disaster Globally, in Texas, in Louisiana, in Arkansas, Arizona, these are the states that incarcerate, uh, that have the highest incarceration uh, rates. And of course, we also know um, that these rates disproportionately affect uh, people of color, African Americans, Hispanics, people of Hispanic Hispanic origin, and I wanna talk about that at the end. Um, so, um, so uh, uh, Texas, you know, depending on how you count, is either uh, fifth or sixth after Louisiana, Oklahoma, Alabama, Mississippi, Arizona, Arkansas. I'm sorry, seventh. Let me give you seven guys. Okay. Um, so uh, seventh with an incarceration uh, rate of uh, 568 prisoners per 100,000 people the U.S average is 500 per 100,000 people so Texas is you know at the top at the top of the scale um, there. Uh, again it's not just incarceration it's also obviously the growth of private prisons that is c- contributing uh, to this high incarceration rate uh, and uh, this is a disputed figure but I'm going to throw it out there anyway Scholars dispute. The import of this. The Brennan Center has said that 39% of state and federal prisoners are locked up without a public safety rationale. Now that's what you have to parse through. What do you mean without a public safety rationale? Um, Because uh, the more we rely on this idea that uh, the only people, uh, that there are way too many people who don't deserve to be in prison because they are only guilty of um, non-threatening offenses, um, the more we challenge what our ultimate goal is with respect uh, to decarceration. So um, there is some uh, scholars, as I say, do uh, tease out that question of uh, who's actually in prison and uh, can we achieve effective decarceration by simply opening the prison doors to those who are only accused of um, offenses for which there is no, as the Brennan Center says, public safety rationale. That would be drug cases, I assume. So now the good news is that these these are changing, that that, that decarceration is in fact happening. Um, That uh, it's happening here in Texas. Uh, The rate of incarceration fell Uh, by 17 percent from 2005 to 2017. The juvenile incarceration rate dropped by almost three-fourths. It's also true that in Texas the crime rate fell by 27 percent. So you have decarceration at 17 percent and the crime rate dropping at 27 percent. There's still that gap. It's true that that Texas, like many other states, have expanded drug and mental health programs in order to facilitate the process of decarceration. Um, Question whether, and I want to ask in a a moment about the effectiveness of these um, drug and mental mental health courts. Uh, But there's still a lot to do. We all know about the move to 18. Uh, That's certainly going to affect uh, incarceration rates. 22,000 juveniles are in the adult system in Texas. That's 22,000 young people in the adult system. Certainly that boost up to 18 uh, will affect that. But given that entire uh, arena, it is still the fact that progress here is way too slow. At a rate of 1% per year, decarceration per year, it will take 75 years, friends, to return to 1985 levels of incarceration. 75 years at the rate we're currently going. So more has to be done. Van Jones uh, is uh, heading up an organization called um, the Cut Cut 50 Campaign, uh, uh, i.e. Reduce Incarceration by 50 percent, I'm not quite sure what their dates are, uh, but you know, spreading, uh, you know, to sort of ramp, uh, ramping up the efforts to decarcerate has got to happen if we're to be successful. Um, number um, seven, minimum, mand- minimum mandatory sentences. Obviously, we know that these were uh, related to the so-called war on drugs. Um, and um, that they have proven um, to be ineffective. Um, That's to say, taking the discretion away from judges, uh, giving it to prosecutors, giving prosecutors the uh, decision-making power to determine who gets exposed to a minimum mandatory and who doesn't. Uh, And that improves the leverage a prosecutor has, obviously, because the prosecutor can say plead to a lesser or you're going to go to trial on the greater charge, uh, or and uh, and be exposed to a minimum mandatory. So to the extent that it gives prosecutors leverage, they're very reluctant to let go of it. The ideal here is individualized sentencing, and we're again incrementally moving towards that goal. Just last week in our state, in Massachusetts, our governor, uh, Governor uh, um, Baker. Uh, Charlie Baker introduced legislation that would allow individuals serving minimum mandatories to earn good time. That hadn't happened before, right? Once you're in there for three to five years, you do the whole three years. Now you can earn good time by participating in programs and that knocks off some of your time. It certainly is a step in the right direction, but that alone is not gonna get us there uh, because uh, it doesn't really undermine uh, the reality uh, that, um, that uh, prosecutors uh, still have the leverage to impose uh, sentences that are not shown to be related to legitimate uh, criminal justice goals, like reducing recidivism. There's no evidence that mandatory, ma- the social science evidence is to the other effect that minimum mandatories reduce uh, in, uh, uh, reduce recidiv- recidivism. The Texas version of min- minimum mandatories was a law passed in 1974, the so-called habitual offender law which required that anyone who had been charged uh, and found guilty of a third felony had to be sentenced to not less than 25 years. The organization out there that's most effective on this issue is an organization, I urge you to check out their website, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. They do fabulous work, fabulous data. They keep you up to date um, on these issues, marshaling all the arguments against minimum mandatories and their families on all sides of this issue. Number eight, life without parole. Obviously, life without parole, just like minimum mandatory, is proliferated in the 1990s as a result of people being afraid of so-called super predators. Remember Hillary Clinton and the super predators um, that fueled all these new laws that expose children to life without parole sentences and the so-called truth in sentencing laws that either abolished or uh, deeply reduced opportunities Uh, for parole in both the federal system and in the state system. Um, So we have to get rid of, I mean I I know I'm talking to death penalty state but you know what's facing you after the death penalty question is life without parole. I know that one of your judges in Texas recently called life without parole a slow motion death sentence. A slow motion death sentence. What he said was this is a death sentence but you don't have any of the protections that you have in a capital case. So uh, you don't have you know, the two tri, the two, uh, the, uh, ju- two juries, the two, the, uh, the two different jury um, uh, de- determinations. Um, you simply are sentenced to life without, and that's, and that's it. And that, that, that is clearly, that is at the height of our list of reform issues in Massachusetts. And clearly, those states without a death penalty are probably going to get there. First, because those states that have the death penalty see life without parole as they did in Texas. You guys adopted life without parole, I think, about what, ten years ago or so, um, as they did in Texas, see that as a as a um, as an alternative to the death sentence. So, um, so that's um, that's number eight. Number nine is um, all the back end reforms that you guys will be talking about in. Uh, the workshop tomorrow on collateral consequences. And uh, these are the sanctions that one experiences. You've gone through the system, you've been arrested, you didn't get a bail set, you completed or you were convicted. Uh, And now uh, finally you're out. Uh, And uh, you're on some sort of parole or probation or you're off of parole or probation. Can you vote? Can you drive a car? Can you rent public housing? Can you get a job? Can you, are you protected from discrimination as a, um, as a person with a criminal record when you apply for a job? Folks, I have a nephew who lives in my home and uh, he's been out about 10 years. And some of you may have this experience, but I tell you, it is a heartbreaker. This young man, he's not so young, but too, he's young to me. He's 35 years old and he goes out Whenever somebody says, try there, Jordan, he goes, he knocks on the door, he tries to get a job, no, no, Auntie, they they didn't want me. And, And he's talented, he's skilled, he's done his time, hard time, not easy time, He did hard time, okay? Now, whether I thought, you know, whether I wanted to say to my nephew, why do you want to do that? Don't get in trouble. Stay out of trouble. Or your cousin stayed out of trouble. Why can't you stay out of trouble, right? Okay, those are finished. This guy did everything he had to do. And I have to watch him every day think about how am I going to get a job? How am I going to hold a job? How am I gonna get out of my aunt's house and live an independent life? Why is this scarring me for the next 50 years? That's wrong, folks. That is wrong. That is wrong. We have to fix that. And I know you're gonna talk more about that tomorrow. So now finally, my 10th point. So we have this coalition, people on the right, people who identify themselves on the left, people who call themselves in the center all lined up to support some form of criminal justice reform. Great. The next question is, what are the arguments going to be here? And how can we make these reforms uh, truly reform, reform uh, reforms? How can we truly transform, transformative? That's the word I'm looking for. How can we make them truly transformative? Now, many folks want to talk about criminal justice without talking about race. The only way to rend the criminal justice arguments on reducing mandatory minimums, no private prisons, better bails, all the things I just enumerated, don't talk about race. Big secret, folks, don't talk about race.? Okay? Once you mention race, people are like, "You know, no, that doesn't work." So you know? I'm fine with that. If we can get reforms that really work. But I'm also troubled that if we don't talk about race, those reforms will introduce many of the same racial disparities that we're dealing with today. So we need to know what, uh, what, what causes those racial disparities, When we have our conversations with our neighbors, right, we need to know what's causing these racial disparities and how can we address them. So let me just say a few words. about. I know she's going to flash that five-minute sign in a second. And I am almost done. I promise you guys. You guys have been really patient. So first of all, uh, the disparities are huge. In part, they're caused by? Greater offending rates. What are the greater offending rates attributable to? In part, they're attributable to higher levels of concentrated poverty, stru- structural issues. Uh, the offending rates are uh, are offend- higher for non-whites than for whites. It's also true that the overwhelming majority of non-whites uh, are not violent, criminals, right, the overwhelming majority of black folk and brown folk are not violent criminals and hence this idea that every black man is a violent criminal and deserves to be stopped when he's driving or walking, this generalized fear of black men is completely irrational, uh, completely irrational, unjustifiable. The largest racial disparity for violent crime is for robbery a crime that relates to the poverty rates. So it's important to understand that these structural factors are what drive the disparity, not cultural factors. This is a class phenomenon, folks. It's not a race phenomenon. It's a class phenomenon. It's that wealth gap uh, that is uh, driving uh, the part of the disparity. It's also true that poverty co- both correlates with higher increased crime rates and that, and this is, this is the double whammy, incarceration is a major factor in income inequality. So if you've been arrested, if you came from a so-called good family like my nephew, and you've nevertheless been arrested, that reduces your marriage prospects, it reduces your, un- your employability, it reduces your lifelong earnings, right? Uh, it mires you in poverty that then recycles. But for the incarceration rate in our country, the nation's poverty rate would be approximately 20% lower than it is today. 20% lower than it is today. So that's one thing, the structural factors. The second thing is that poor neighborhoods lack access to the resources we all need to build communities. And those resources are mental health services, uh, addiction services, um, good health care. All of those resources um that uh, that help to build up communities some of those are only available if people get arrested that's when you get the drug counseling not in your community but once you get in the criminal justice wound up in the criminal justice system then it's available to you not so in in wealthier communities those communities have access to the services that keep, them, keep people uh, 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 surviving and resilient and able to manage the bumps and lumps that come from daily life that might throw someone else into a jail cell. Obviously, the war on drugs, I've mentioned that. We all know about the disparate sentencing. That's part of the racial disparities. That's well known now, uh, internationally, the crack. Okay, disparity. But it's not just the war on drugs that increased um, the exposure uh, and the risks to African Americans and, uh, and, and Hispanic communities um, to incarceration. It's also that there's drugs, we, there's drugs everywhere, but in those communities, in our communities, that stuff was going on in the street. Not in, you weren't selling drugs from your house, you are selling them on the street. And that meant greater exposure and greater arrests. And also, those markets were located, in those, intentionally located, in those communities. So that's another reason. And then, and then, then finally, just plain bias. There's all the science out there on bias. Some of it is um, over, but a lot of it, folks. I was on the bench. Uh, a lot of this and many of you are decision makers and what we now know is that biases are ever present in our decision making they're just there that's how the human mind functions right they did uh, a test of umpires in uh, major league baseball and found out that the umps who uh, that umps favored their own racial group This is like across the races. The black umps favored the black players, the white umps favored the white players. So that's just our reality. That's a reality that we have to live with. I'm not saying that to take anyone off the hook for biases that are overt and need to be corrected. All I'm saying is that bias inserts itself into the decision making by police officers, by judges, by probation officers, and by people uh, who are working um, in our prisons. And that too is a cause of the disparities. So the question then is how do we reduce these disparities? And I think I've given you a long laundry list of possibilities of ways to reduce these disparities, including these risk assessment tools. So let me conclude. (laughs) Getting a thumbs up on that one. (laughs) Okay, folks. So uh, here in Texas, um, Mark Gonzalez was elected to be district attorney. Uh, how do you pronounce the name of his county? New, New, Nuez County? S- hmm? S- okay, thank you. S- <laughs> Nuez County, All right? And so this guy has uh, tattooed on his chest the sign, he's a former uh, public defender, he has tattooed on his chest the sign, not guilty. Right. Does that mean he's gonna open the jailhouse doors? No. What it means is that he and the 10 or 11 other district attorneys who won, while he shall, shall not be named, also won in November, right, uh, in Washington, um, that those, um, those district attorneys uh, committed to changing the culture in their offices and with the police with whom they deal. And that has to happen. Prosecutors have enormous power. That's a black box. We haven't really looked at that box. We haven't tapped that box to figure out how what decision making goes on there that has affected, has created this monster that we're talking about. And so with these new, this new effort to, uh, to uh, require criminal justice reform tests for prosecutors who are running for office, see where you stand on those issues, change will come. This is a local issue. What's going on in Washington, crazy as it seems from day to day, and I'm a news junkie, I watch every day, I turn on every day to see what happened, right? Uh, But crazy as that um, might seem, or unseemly as it might seem, uh, let me just say that these issues are gonna be solved at the state on the local level. That's where criminal justice work takes place, that's where the laws get made, uh, and that's where the laws and practices can change. So, we're at a, um, at a we have, as I, I opened with this, I'm gonna close with it, uh, an enormous opportunity, challenge, um, and, um, yeah, challenge, let me leave it at that, that word, challenge. So i like to close with a word of, I can't sing with a damn. <laughs> One, kind One kind favor I ask of you. One kind favor I ask of you. One kind favor I ask of you. Please see that my grave is kept clean. giving folks an opportunity to say, a few, to ask a question, I should say. No questions? Question? okay. Comments? <laughs> Jokes? <laughs> you, any, any presentations? Great, question.
3: Yes, I have a question. Um, I was close to a case where the death penalty... Can I have your name? Could you say you tell me your name? Please? Yeah, my name's Ann, and I'm from the neighborhood. And I'm really grateful for you being here. I'm grateful for having this in our neighborhood. Um, I was close to a case where the death penalty was involved, and a plea bargain was struck for life in prison. My question about the death penalty is, I don't think, as long as it exists, it gives the defendant a shot at, if it's hanging there and in a state like Texas, which is likely to go for it, where you have juries that are predisposed, you really don't have a fair shot in trial, um, especially you know, if you've got a case that's more difficult. And as a result, you really don't have the freedoms we all, or the, the right we all should have to a fair and just trial. And so it even, even if it exists, it creates this conundrum for people. And I wonder if there's anybody talking about that as a reason to get rid of the death penalty.
2: I think lots of people are talking about it. Uh, it's one of the fundamental arguments. Uh, against the death penalty is that it uh, has a corrupting, uh, cancerous influence on the whole criminal justice system. Uh, That when you've got the death, that that you you can do all these other reforms, but as long as you have the death penalty kind of hovering over a system like that, and also a death penalty that uh, in our experience, in our country, will never be uh, implemented in a way that is not, um, influenced by racial bias. Never, never be, uh, not in my lifetime, uh, influenced uh, or implemented in a non-racially biased way. And since that's true, it will always have an element of unconstitutionality. There's no way to erase that from the death penalty. Uh, and that's proven by experience, by a series of cases that look at the death penalty. So. Um, so it is an argument uh, that goes to sort of the fundamental questions that we're looking at this weekend, which is, you know, how do we transform this system? Right? Uh, let me also say this, Anne, right? Let me also say this, um, that for those of you who've been on the front lines, and I know there are many of you in this room of the death penalty struggle, uh, my, uh, my heart and my thanks go out to you. Uh, for all your efforts on that uh, on uh, on that score, I think it's also true um, that we can't let that as important as it is. Uh, we can't let that struggle on the death penalty issue overwhelm our need to try to make progress on some of these other issues as well, right? Um, So, you know, there are people who have devoted their lives, and I know many of them, and some of you may be in this room, have devoted 20, 30, 40 years um, to this this death penalty uh, fight. Uh, uh, and, 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 And yes, that's important, but it is also important to realize that there are steps that we can take now, that there's a window that's open now on some of these other issues um, that may not be open later on. And we just have to step in there. We have to step into that space, we have to claim that space, and we have to really understand that in claiming that space, that will percolate up. And it will affect attitudes about criminal justice and the, per- and the whole, the raison d'etre for redemption, right, uh, which will affect the death penalty uh, discussion, more broadly. i think, you know, given the recent, um, appointment
4: of a new Attorney General and turning their back on some of the reforms that, uh, President Obama did with
2: relation to police reform, on the drug war, on mass incarceration, How is that going to affect some of the progress that has been made and we were looking forward to changes? Thank you that's a great question Um, and uh, the answer is it's going to be devastating Uh, you know that wasn't part of my speech because it is going to be devastating (laughs) but but, uh, you have in sessions An attorney general who, as senator, voted against um, the Senate reform, criminal reform bill that was pending last year. Uh, You have, you know, in sessions, a. uh, Let me just give you one example. Uh, uh, President Obama's Justice Department uh, used the law, a 1990s era law, to investigate police departments that had. Uh, patterns and practices of misconduct. Departments like Ferguson, Chicago, um, uh, uh, Balt- yeah Baltimore exactly—and these um, these DOJ uh, Civil Rights Division investigations uh, went in enormous depth in- into the practices in these departments, and made an effort either through court or through consent degrees to hold them accountable to constitutional norms. Uh, that's done. That's over, right? And, and we only had, we had maybe six years of that. It was like about six years, it was, uh, two years into his um, administration before um, Obama's Justice Department really uh, Holder and um, the... the um, well, Lynch right got into that work they did a bang-up job and not only you know and, and again that percolates down because once they show and, and they and it was the Justice Department nobody else could do that no independent group no college students no you know independent researcher could get that data you had to get that data because you had the power to subpoena it that's done that's over so, um, and if you look at their website, you'll see that all the stuff that Loretta Lynch and uh, Eric Holder did, that they were so proud of, finished. Right? Um, Voting Rights Act. So, the, so, the, so this, is, this is devastating. This is real, it's serious. Uh, it will undo uh, years of progress on the federal level. Uh, and it is also the reason we have to renew our efforts in our location, in our localities, in our states, in our in our cities, and in our states. That has to happen. Not to say we we you know don't do no pressure in Washington anymore, uh, but we do have to realize um, that uh, that the action serious um, and measurable action is going to happen at the local level It's not going to happen in washington anymore
4: first of all you sang very well (laughs) (laughs) my question is you were advocating for more control in the hands of prosecutors but if your advancement is contingent on how many convictions you can get how does that make sense and uh What about maybe getting rid of the immunity that prosecutors have to a certain degree?
2: Eliminating immunity? Prosecutorial immunity? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So, on your first question, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't get your name. Joe. Joe's first question was uh, prosecutors get to advance in their offices and become uh, senior prosecutors and then become people who can run for district attorney and then run for other political office because of the notches on their belt, right? It's about wins and losses. That's really what it's about. Uh, That that can change. That culture can change. Uh, And it is different in other countries uh, where uh, there are other measures of prosecutorial success uh, beyond wins and losses. Um, the you know how and, and we have to figure out what those might be. Whether or not you recommended uh, what what is objectively a fair resolution of the case has to be, uh, you know, uh, some measure. Uh, I have a colleague, his name is Dan Medwed who studies um, this question and who writes about the need to introduce new, uh, new new ways of determining whether a prosecutor is actually uh, uh, ultimately successful. That's going to take that's a long uh, a long road, but we have to begin to walk it. Um, your second question was about prosecutorial immunity, and this is a, an area too in which um, uh, developments in Texas loom uh, quite large because of a United States Supreme Court case. Um, in which a prosecutor failed to turn over Brady material and a man spent most of his life in jail as a result of it. Um, so, um, so in that case, the prosecutor was sued. I can't remember what the result was. actually. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but um, in any event, prosecutors deserve some immunity for some um, activities. Uh, They deserve and need some immunity because they are officers of the court with important decision-making functions and they have to have some protection and some degree of confidentiality for decisions they make. But prosecutorial immunity is, I think, uh, more more broad than it should be and it does interfere with our ability um, to reach prosecutors who Uh, are uh, responsible for what I would call gross violations of constitutional rights. So, you know, figuring out what that standard should be, uh, maybe it shouldn't be every constitutional violation, maybe there should be some gross violation standard that overrules the general uh, principle of prosecutorial immunity.
4: Good evening, my name is Lauren Salombana. Can you speak up? I'm sorry. Yes. Yes, sorry about that. I um I myself am a student at the University of Saint Thomas, and I'm someone who is living the cruel reality of the justice system here with my, uh, with a custody case that I'm dealing with my my baby son, and uh, growing up my father was a director of finances at many multi-billion-dollar um, companies around the world, and something that rung in my ears was Sarbanes-Oxley compliance, which is in place pretty much accountants' accountability. Um, It's accountants' accounting, pretty much. And it is a reform that just checks up on who checks up on the accounting that these companies do. And I was wondering, I mean, my comment is, there should be something like this. I mean, with so much money that that we With all of our transactions, we have this going on, which money moves the world, so it's like, why don't we have accountability and account, like, kind of a Sarbanes-Oxley movement of our um, justice system? Why don't we have a group of people who are our peers or good people that we agree upon to check up on our justice system on a whole basis? It, can, it should go, I mean, personally, just as a student, I'm, I'm nobody, but that's just my opinion. I think that somebody, that there should be a group, I mean, not a group of elders, but people who check up on these people um, on a popular consensus. Thank you.
0: Is there a parallel in the criminal justice on survey Um This. This,
4: this reform came about after Enron happened. Okay. Um, account, like, because so many accountants were- I understand, collapsed. I get your point.
2: I take your point. I, I take your point. Um, first of all, let me just say that um, actually, you know, check up on these people. So, you know, our language is important here. So these people, the people who actually run our criminal justice system. Those are our neighbors and uncles and aunts. Those are the people who are the police officers and so on and so forth. I mean, so these people are are us. Like, so the question is, how do we check up on us? That's really the question here, right? So, you know, we tend to do a little othering sometimes when we talk about criminal justice, and it's really, I, you know, it's, I, I take your point, but we really, I think, in our speech, we have to be careful to understand. Um, that that, uh, we're talking, we need to talk the same language, right? We need to sit next to each other and have a drink together and that kind of thing. And we do that, do do that, that we all have, most of us have folks, you know, or many of us have folks on both sides of this line, people who are subject to the system and people who work in the system. So, in, fr- in terms of uh, in terms of um, oxley, and uh, effective measures uh, of control, uh, I, I think I've tried to describe some that I think could be put in place. And you know, it's it's arduous and it's a long, it's a long and hard listen. And you, and you do have to get into you know down into the weeds of this stuff a little bit in order to figure out you know, which checks will, will, should actually be put in place and which will be effective. And that's, I think, what criminal justice reform is really all about, is figuring out how we can monitor those who are responsible for our system. So I really thank you for that question. I think it's a good analogy.
0: Before we go outside for uh, some more fellowship and refreshment, let me just do a quick uh, couple of uh, housekeeping notes. Uh, Before I do that, though, Professor Burnham, I want to just say one thing that's really stuck in my mind that you said tonight. And it's really this sense of perpetual punishment. Your story about your nephew really resonates. And I think that for people of ethics, people of faith, people of goodwill, I wonder about that sense of, we're very different in this country, you didn't mention it, there are other countries that once you do your time and you've gone through that process, your record basically is purged, it's gone. For some reason, so often we have this sense of perpetual punishment that never ends and I was in Oregon before I came back to Texas and big movement there on ban the box for example on your, on your job applications. Uh, that box that says have you ever been convicted is not on the, bo- on the application anymore. That will come up, it's not to say it won't come up but it becomes a point of discussion when you're in the interview where you get actually a chance to describe what might have happened 20 years ago on a minor offense. But otherwise, you're automatically precluded from further on. So I really appreciate that. The second thing I want to say really ties to the next two days. You did a beautiful job to set us up uh, for what's going to come forward. What we'll be doing tomorrow, we'll start, uh, uh, we'll have continental breakfast for those who want to gather early at 8.15 in the morning. I'm sure it's gonna be a great morning here. It's beautiful to be here first thing. Uh, you know, get away from the cacophony of the city and come have some refreshment, some coffee and some breakfast. A chance to get together and then at nine o'clock we'll begin the program. We have a full day tomorrow and then into Saturday where we really start diving deeper into the mechanics of what Professor Burnham laid out. So some of your questions, we'll, get, we'll hear firsthand how this works in real time. The other thing we're going to do is really listen to stories, uh, people who are working in the system, people who have been affected by the system, and I think that's part of what you said at the end, is creating that space for dialogue, for listening, and for sharing back and forth, to get that sense of what can I do as an individual, what could you do as a university? What you could do in your Kiwanis Club, your congregation? What could we do to help uh, make a positive difference? So with that, I just want to say thank you all for being here tonight. I would just ask if you could exit through the center rows and we'll go out, uh, go out for uh, more discussion. Ashley, is there anything else that I need to say? I see a hand over here. Yes, it takes about a few weeks, but it will be up on the Rothko Chapel website. That's in our program. And uh, let me see if there's any other housekeeping business for the evening. I don't think so, but you can catch one of us with our name tags if you have a question. We'll see you out on the plaza. Have a great evening. Thanks for coming.